Welcome back to lesson number two at Super Scary Haunted Homeschool. I'm Grady Hendricks, author of the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, and this is a thinly disguised attempt to get you to buy my new book. Last week we talked about the when of vampires, but today we're going back to the beginning and learning all about the who, what, where, why, and how. From the first verified report of a vampire in the real world, all the way to the last reported vampire ever. Except for serial killers who claim to be vampires. And goth kids with filed teeth and contact lenses. And kinksters who do vampire roleplay. And vampire the masquerade LARPers. And the real vampire community. What country became plagued by bloodsuckers first? And which trashy remote backwater burg reported vampires last? Just like a BuzzFeed listicle, you won't believe the answers. So let's bar the windows, shutter the doors, lock your children inside the prayer closet, because it's time to learn some history! Scary haunted homeschool. Seventeen twenty five, Serbia, the village of Kisilova. Last week, Pitar Plagowitz died, which came as a shock to everyone because he was a top notch peasant. Salt of the earth, strong as an ox, never did a single thing out of the ordinary in his entire 62 years on this planet except for that one time just before Christmas when he wore red socks. They were a gift from his wife, but he thought they drew too much attention to his ankles, so he went back to his normal socks before noon. He was absolutely, positively the last guy you'd expect to find standing in this hut at an ungodly hour of the night three days after he died demanding new shoes. And yet... Here he is. His wife wondered if Pitar had been buried by accident because, well, it happens in 1725 Serbia. But his nose was completely rotted off, leaving only a hole in the middle of his face, so there was absolutely no doubt about it whatsoever. Pitar was 100% dead. Think about it from his wife's point of view. One minute, he's refusing to wear those red socks she spent weeks knitting just because they're too flashy, and the next minute, he's crawling out of his grave and demanding footwear. It's inconsistent. It's not what a good marriage is based on. So the next night, when Pitar dragged his rotten old face out of the tomb and into his hut, he discovered that his wife had moved to another village. The only person home was Pitar's son, and Pitar demanded that his son make him dinner, and his son said no. So Pitar left, which seemed like a happy ending because everyone likes a reanimated cadaver who understands that no means no until the next day, when Pitar's son got sick and died. Plot twist. Over the next week, eight people in the village got sick. On their deathbeds, they all described nightmares in which Pitar silently slithered into their rooms, bit their throats, and sucked their blood. Which didn't seem like the Pitar they knew at all, but, you know, people change, especially after they die. That was a fact all eight of them became intimately familiar with over the course of the next week, as each of them in turn got sicker and sicker and died. They all had to face facts. Pitar Plokowitz was a vampire. Kisilova was located in a part of Serbia that had been at war for over 250 years, torn back and forth and back and forth between the Ottoman and the Habsburg empires. The Ottomans were Muslim, the Habsburg were Austrian, and the Serbians by now had cultural whiplash. On top of that, their country was war-torn, depopulated, and awash with endless eddies of refugees streaming to safety in vast waves. 
The village of Kisilova itself had belonged to the Ottomans until recently when it passed back into Austrian control. And so, as Pitar Plagowitz rose from the unquiet earth to kill his old friends and neighbors one by one, the people of Kisilova went to their new bosses, the Habsburg army, and asked for help. The poor schmuck who got stuck with this case was the local imperial provisar, Frombald, a medical officer, and the peasants begged him to come back to Kisilova and take care of their vampire problem. He refused. So instead, they pleaded with him to come and be the official witness while they dug up their neighbors and decapitated their corpses one by one. Not thrilled about any of this, Frombald insisted they wait until he could notify someone up the chain of command, hoping maybe they'd forget about the whole thing. But the peasants feared that by the time the chain of command got back to them with an answer, they'd all be dead. And so, reluctantly, Frombald, the local priest, and two officers went back to Kisilova to attend the exhumation. Vampires are always in the last place you think to look, just like your keys. And they had already pulled out the eight rotting corpses of their fellow farmers and destroyed them before they unearthed Petar Plagowitz's coffin. His eyes opened. He breathed gently, seemingly in a trance. His hair had grown long, his nails were long and ragged, and his mouth was slobbered and stained with fresh blood. Frombald tried to stop them, but as he wrote in his report, the peasants saw Petar and ran directly for a sharp-pointed stake which they thrust into his breast, whence there issued a fresh quantity of crimson blood and also from the nose and mouth. Something also proceeded from that part of his body which decency does not allow us to mention. Let your imagination run wild. Then they burned Pitar's corpse. Terrified he'd be found responsible and get in trouble, Frombald wrote a report saying that none of this was his fault, and he submitted it immediately up the chain of command. And so, the case of Pitar Plagowitz became the first fully documented, witnessed, signed, sealed, written, and verified report of a vampire in human history. Two years after the death of Pitar Plagowitz in the Serbian village of Medvija, which is a lovely little mud pile near Belgrade, Arnaud Paol, a war veteran, died in a tragic hay cart accident the day before his wedding, which is very sad. Even sadder, it turns out he'd caught vampirism from some Greek vampire he'd helped stake while in the military and stationed in Granitsa. Soon after his burial, Arnaud could be seen lurking in bushes and scratching at windows. As the bleak winter descended on Serbia, no one dared to venture outside. The villagers kept their doors locked, their shutters barred, their fires stoked high. But still, throughout December and into January, they fell ill and died, one after the other, after the other. Finally, they appealed to their regional administrator who sent two military officers and two military surgeons plus a drummer boy to the Medwegia graveyard one gray, grim, midwinter morning. They dug up the grave of Arnaud and found his corpse, jaws gaping wide, blood trickling from his mouth. The drummer boy fainted. They staked Arnaud, and he screamed as warm blood spouted out in a great crimson jet. Just to be sure, they exhumed his four victims and drove white-thorn stakes through them, too. Then, all five bodies were burned. All was well in Medwegia for four years, but in 1731, 13 villagers were attacked by their recently deceased neighbors, who also sucked some sheep down to the dregs. Since Serbian peasants had a real waste-not-want-not attitude towards life, they ate the drained sheep, which made them sick, and then they died. And then they turned into vampires, too. But the Habsburg army, fortified by Frombald's report, knew exactly what to do. They dispatched a medical team to Medwegia. 
Dr. Glazier, epidemiologist, military surgeons Isaac Seidel, Johann Friedrich Baumgartner, and Johann Fluckinger. These are the men. These are the cases. These are the sad peasants of Vampire Hunters of the Imperial Habsburg Army. At the graveyard, they discovered mayhem. The woman Stana had anointed herself with vampire blood to ward off attacks, but she and her baby had died anyway, so vampires. The baby had been scraped out of the ground and half eaten by wolves, but Stana was found full of fresh blood. A woman named Melitza was found with a heart full of liquid blood and bowels full of meat. As the local peasants said, she looked healthier dead than she had alive. Near her was an eight-year-old child who had been dead for 90 days, also in the vampire condition. Milok, 16 years old, dead 90 days, rosy and flabber, wholly in the vampire condition. A 17-year-old boy, unmistakably in the vampire condition, an important local named Stanko, was found full of rich blood. A 10-year-old girl was found in the vampire condition and was staked and gushed forth a great quantity of hot blood which filled her coffin and swilled her grave. All of them were decapitated, and with the help of local gypsies hired for the day, their bodies were burned and their ashes were thrown into the river. Dr. Glazier's account read, A magical plague has been rampant in Serbia for some time. Perfectly normal dead people are arising from their undisturbed graves to kill the living. These two, dead and buried in their turn, arise in the same way to kill yet more people. This occurs by the following means. The dead people attack by night while they are asleep and suck their blood out of them. On the third day, they die. No cure has yet been found for this evil. Johann Flukinger wrote a more detailed report that was endorsed as visum et repertum, which meant manifestations seen and corroborated, and signed by officers of the Alexandrian Regiment. Their reports were sent to Central Command in Belgrade, then passed up the chain to Vienna, where someone leaked them to the press. The Flukinger report was published in papers in Vienna, Nuremberg, Leipzig, Berlin, Paris, and London. Twelve books and four dissertations on vampirism appeared after it between 1732 and 1733. Glazer's father, also a doctor and a correspondent for a journal, Commercium Literarium, wrote an article about the event, and it became popular. And in 1732 alone, Commercium Literarium published 17 more articles about vampires. Newspapers across Austria picked up on the vampire craze, and it swept across Europe. Vampires had become a media sensation. The Oxford English Dictionary records the first usage of the word vampire in a 1734 book. The travels of three gentlemen from Venice to Hamburg being the grand tour of Germany in the year 1734. These three gentlemen stayed in Slovenia, where their inn's landlord told them that the country is occasionally infested by vampires. They then quote at length from a German journal. The vampires which come out of the graves in the nighttime rush upon people sleeping in their beds, suck out all their blood, and destroy them. They attack men, women, and children, sparing neither age nor sex. Vampires were the media sensation that was sweeping across Europe. Dateline Croatia, 1737. Vampires responsible for outbreak of diarrhea. 
Locals go bananas, digging up and paling decapitating and hamstringing so many suspected vampiric corpses that 18 people are charged with violating the dead. Dateline, England, 1739. King George II believes in vampires. Pope Benedict XIV remains skeptical. Extra, extra, the Earl of Sandwich names his racehorse Vampire, not because it creeps through windows and sucks blood, but because he believes it is a stylish name. Dateline Paris, rumors spread that Louis XV is kidnapping the children of commoners and draining them of their blood to cure his daughter's leprosy. Riots result, killing 20, mostly commoners. Extra, vampire attacks reported in Banat, Moravia, Rolachia, vampires on the move. Oliver Goldsmith and Alexander Pope both wrote about vampires, and so did Rousseau, who had some doubts about all these first-person accounts. There is not a historical fact in the world more fully attested than that of vampires. It is confirmed by regular information, certificates of notaries, surgeons, vicars, and magistrates. And yet with all this, who believes in vampires? My constant experience, as well as that of mankind in general, is much more convincing in this respect in the testimony of these so-called individuals. Satirist Henry Fielding knew the true identity of vampires. Book critics, who were... Vampires being dead and damned with the blood of living bards are crammed. Robert Burns, the 18th century Scots poet, knew that vampires weren't book critics at all. They were actually booksellers, and bards like him were prey to vampire booksellers that drain me to the heart. To the smart set, more and more, vampires weren't monsters. They were metaphors. Irish poet Thomas More hated the British and wrote that the British government was that greedy vampire which from freedom's tomb comes forth with all the mimicry of bloom upon its lifeless cheek and sucks and drains a people's blood to feed its putrid veins. The British returned the favor, publishing a popular cartoon print in Punch of a giant bat hovering over a swooning British lass, the bat bearing the face of Charles Parnell, founder of the Irish National League. Just in case anyone missed the point, the artist helpfully wrote, National League, on the vampire bat's outstretched wings. The Irish returned fire, with a cartoon of a brave Irish lass, sporting a shield emblazoned with the words, National League, scaring off a flapping pot-bellied bat with an overbite whose bloated, bulging gut bore the words, British rule. Vampires became beloved in political cartoons, representing, in turn, the dangers of corrupt Democratic politicians, corrupt Republican politicians, Abraham Lincoln, landed railroad interests, the Catholic Church, giving black people the vote, and department stores. Up until now, vampires had been reanimated peasants, rural relics, really, haunting lonely forests and forgotten villages, but now they were getting a class-conscious makeover, as vampires had their mainstream moment. Voltaire set the tone early in his 1746 Philosophical Dictionary, writing that, while he'd never seen real vampires, in Paris and London, vampires were stock jobbers, brokers, men of business who suck the blood of the people in broad daylight. These true suckers live not in cemeteries, but in very agreeable palaces. 102 years later came 1848, the year that lived in infamy. When ragtag revolutions erupted in Germany, Denmark, Hungary, Romania, Ireland, Spain, and most importantly, France. 
Led by loosely affiliated coalitions of blue-collar workers, students, reformers, white-collar professionals, and farmers, the people suddenly rose up and demanded freedom of press, freedom of assembly, and more democratic participation in their governments. France overthrew its monarchy and formed a republic. Across Germany, Italy, and Austria, the old empires flinched and allowed constitutions to be written so that their faded aristocracy could at least cling to some shreds of power. But infighting among the revolutionary reformers brought progress, shuddering to a halt as the middle class began fighting the working class, giving the rich upper class time to regroup. By 1851, many of the old guard had returned to power, forcing revolutionary leaders into exile, and tens of thousands of poor people were dead. But for two years, the world had seemed to be shuddering on the precipice of enormous progressive change. Karl Marx and Frederick Engels belonged to a secret society of workers called the League of the Just, which had previously been known by the much cooler name, the League of Outlaws, but soon they switched to the even more boring Communist League. Without a badass name, the Communist League needed a mission statement or, or I don't know, something written down, maybe a, a manifesto? So they hired Karl Marx to write one. Marx agreed, and then... Nothing happened. Revolutionary spirits started simmering everywhere in Europe and Karl Marx cleaned his apartment. Then he wrote some articles. Then he did the dishes, gave some speeches. He met Ingalls in a coffee shop for a chat. He darned his socks. Finally, with France about to break out into open revolution, the Communist League told Marx he had one week to deliver their manifesto. So Marx turned off his internet and dashed out. <laughs> Communist Manifesto! Credited to Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, Engels didn't write a word of the Communist Manifesto. Marx said, however, that the two of them had co-developed its ideas over oat lattes, creating an intellectual bank account upon which either could draw freely. So Engels deserved a co-author credit. Also, Engels turned Marx onto vampires. In his very first book, The Condition of the Working Class in England, Ingalls had written that working men would have to abandon religion because it made them weak and resigned to their fates, and their fate was to be obedient and faithful servants to, quote, the vampire property-holding class. And so, in 1848, Karl Marx combined both Frederick Engels' concerns about vampires and the current vampire trend sweeping Europe in the rousing opening of The Communist Manifesto. A specter is haunting Europe. The specter of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exercise this specter. Pope and Tsar, Metternich and Guizot, French radicals and German police spies. When the Black Death raged across Europe in the 14th century, killing tens of millions, it was portrayed as the specter of death dancing across the land. Now, the specter was communism, a boogeyman conjured up by the vampire property-holding class. But Marx wanted people to know that the real specter, the true vampires, were not the working class, but the people pulling the puppet strings. The same year the Communist Manifesto was published, Marx wrote that the French National Assembly was a vampire living off the 
blood of the June insurgents. And the bourgeois order has become a vampire which sucks out the rural workers' blood and brains and throws them into the alchemist's cauldron. Ingalls depicted the capital class as feeding off its workers, literally cannibalizing them and sucking their blood. Lace-making exploited children and was, quote, blood-sucking, while American capital was financed by the capitalized blood of children. Marx and Engels described the appropriation of labor as the lifeblood of capitalism, which was only interested in the transformation of children's blood into capital. Marx said, If money comes into the world with a congenital blood stain on one cheek, then capital comes dripping from head to toe, from every pore, with blood. By the time he got to writing Das Kapital in 1867, Marx wasn't fooling around. If the capital class sucked the blood of the working class, then clearly there was only one thing they could be. Capital is dead labor, which vampire-like lives only by sucking living labor, and lives the more, the more labor it sucks. Capital sucks up the workers' value-creating power, and it is dripping with blood. The prolongation of the working day into the night, he writes, only slightly quenches the vampire thirst for the living blood of labor. The vampire will not let go while there remains a single muscle, sinew, or drop of blood to be exploited. Vampire was not an empty word to Karl Marx. This wasn't some metaphor he'd read in the paper. He knew exactly what he was saying. In Das Kapital, he likened the endless working day to other instances where the rich had legally dominated the helpless poor, like American slavery or feudalism's corvée system, by which serfs owed their lord a certain amount of unpaid work per year. Supposedly, it was for a set number of days, but Marx noted that the corvée system was riddled with legal loopholes, which allowed the lords to keep adding days until their peasants had to spend most of their time toiling for free. To support his argument, Marx quoted a boyard, or prince, from Elias Regnold's 1855 book, The Political and Social History of the Principalities Bordering the Danube. The twelve corvée days of organic regulations, cried a boyar drunk with victory, amount to 365 days in the year. The boyar speaking. Vlad the Impaler. Better known today as Vlad Dracula. Das Kapital was published in 1867, 30 years before Bram Stoker published Dracula. But even back then, Karl Marx knew his vampires. We think of the rich as lovable bloodsuckers today, eager to feast upon the flesh of the 99%, growing fat and corpulent as we wither and starve. But that idea originated somewhere, and for that, we owe the buddy team of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. If you ever wonder why Dracula wears a tuxedo in his account, just thank Karl and Freddy. In the 19th century, vampires went from being ruddy peasants dug up from underground to pale, soft, creeping, cadaverous creatures who craved blood. They became more sensual and sensitive, almost feminized. And that might be because they became associated with one specific disease, tuberculosis. Known as phthisis, scrofula, 
king's evil, and gastric fever, tuberculosis was most commonly called consumption because of the way it consumed the bodies of its victims, eating them alive until nothing was left but skin and bones. And tuberculosis consumed on an epic scale. In the last years of the 18th century, one of every four deaths in England was from consumption. And in the United States, consumption was responsible for 25% of all deaths, making it the third leading killer on the continent. There was no treatment, no cure, and it could work on its victims for years in secret before manifesting outward symptoms, at which point it destroyed the health of its hosts alarmingly fast. And it was super cool. Like a 13-year-old goth writing in his journal, Lord Byron claimed he wanted to die from tuberculosis because it was so sexy. Alexander Dumas' 1848 novel, La Dame aux Camélias, had its heroine delicately <laughs> coughing at her last into a lace hanky as she died of the white death. Men with consumption were seen as doomed and sensitive, attuned to a super special spiritual wavelength. And a woman dying of consumption was the most elegant image, the tenderest tragedy, the most precious pairing of sex in death that any soul could imagine, binding together the beauty of the grave with the hotness of the goth. Before the 1800s, women had often worked side by side with men in fields and factories, in workshops and on homesteads. But at the turn of the century, as mechanization began to take over manual labor, poor women kept working, while middle class women, the, the right women, the real women, the ideal of women, were taken out of the public sphere and installed in the home as sacred, fragile, undefiled, somewhat infantile, holy relics, glowing with purity. Doctors would write about women with consumption as if they weren't quite sure whether they wanted to heal them or hump them. Or, in the case of Thomas Henderson in the American Journal of the Medical Sciences in 1831, maybe to plant them in a pot of soil. It has been observed that consumption preys not on the thorns and brambles of this wilderness, but on the rose and passion flower of human excellence and gentleness. This was exemplified to me in the case of this lady, apprehensive from the fragile delicacy of constitution that she would have consumption. She was nurtured with all the vigilance and care required by the loveliest and most tender flower. Victims of consumption wasted away, becoming pale, thin whispers of their former selves. At night, they felt as if a great weight sat upon their chest, and their lips were often bright red, slobbered with the blood they coughed up from their lungs. Samuel Warren, who was not a doctor, compared the disease to the vampire in his Passages from the Diary of a Late Physician. Consumption. Terrible, insatiable tyrant. Who can arrest thy progress or number thy victims? Why dost thou attack the fairest and loveliest of our species? Why select blooming and beautiful youth instead of haggard and exhausted age? By what infernal subtlety hast thou contrived hitherto to baffle the profoundest skills of science, to frustrate utterly the uses of experience, and why disclose thyself only when thou hast irretrievably secured thy victim, and thy fangs are crimsoned with its blood? 
In a treatise on pulmonary consumption in 1830, John Murray writes, Consumption like the vampire, while it drinks up the vital stream, fans with its wing the hopes that flutter in the hectic breast. Slowly but surely, tuberculosis became a vampire's disease. The first place we have vampires being dug up and decapitated on the record was in 1725 in the Serbian village of Kisilova. The last place would surely be somewhere equally backwards and barbaric, someplace grim and remote, a place full of superstitious hicks and flat-faced yokels. Yes, it would be Exeter, Rhode Island in 1893. American vampires first crop up in 1784 in the Connecticut Courant and Weekly Intelligencer, when Councilman Moses Holmes wrote against a certain quack doctor, whom he noted helpfully was a foreigner, who had advised families to dig up their dead relatives and burn their corpses to stop the spread of consumption. The councilman had already seen several children dragged from their graves at this foreign doctor's urging and set on fire while their parents watched. He didn't want to see it anymore. Too bad! In Woodstock, Vermont, a vampire's heart was burnt on the town green, watched by a festive crowd. And in Manchester, Vermont, in 1793, hundreds of people attended a vampire's heart-burning ceremony at a local smithy. Between 1796 and 1893, there were 80 documented vampire exhumations in America, almost one per year, mostly in New England. In America, tuberculosis was one of the leading causes of death, and no one knew what caused it or how to treat it. I mean, they all had ideas, though. Some surgeons suggested bleeding and some suggested sanitariums, while physicians urged blistering, apparatus healers advocated diet and exercise, botanic Indian healers prescribed leeching, pharmaceutical peddlers pushed opium poultices or purgatives. It was hard to cure it when you didn't know the cause. Maybe tuberculosis was caused by laziness, maybe by bad air, maybe rich diets, maybe poor diets, maybe too much luxury, maybe too much alcohol. In New England, everyone knew the cause. Vampires! And they all knew what the cure was. In Maine and Massachusetts, they dug up the body of the vampire and flipped it upside down so it wouldn't bother anyone anymore. But in Vermont, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, they dug up the suspected vampire, tore out its heart, and sometimes other organs, and burned them to ashes. The rest of the family, or those afflicted by the vampire, would inhale the smoke of the burning heart, or they would drink the ashes of their dead children mixed into glasses of water. As far as regional foods go, this was the pits. You think grits are too weird for you, or head cheese, or pickled pig's feet? Come to New England, where we eat the fried ashes of our own dead children. This happened in an America that had telephones and oil pipelines, escalators and subway trains. The bacterium that caused tuberculosis had been discovered in 1882, even though there wasn't a cure. And yet in New England, people believed in vampires like it was 1725 and they were back in some war-torn Serbian village. But vampires appear during a plague, and pestilence short-circuits our rational minds. The sick man hallucinates from his fever, and in the 19th century, New England suffered and sweated and shook with sickness. 
The cities of New England were a well-scrubbed Yankee paradise, but outside those cities there existed an enormous backwater, starting in eastern Connecticut and Rhode Island, following the Connecticut River north into Vermont and New Hampshire, and then into southern Maine. Only 10% of the people who lived in this region belonged to a church. Some churches even sent missionaries to these dark backwoods farms and remote hollows to bring the people back into the faith. And these missionaries came back reporting on a region where they said people lived like animals in houses with no Bible, where they believed in divination, seeing stones, dowsing, and astrology. Stirring this ferment into a thick stew was a lecture circuit that provided a steady parade of con men and hokum doctors who provided the month's only entertainment selling miracle cures and patent medicine to cure everything from cancer to warts. These so-called doctors knew a little about a little, and they papered over the vast gaps in their knowledge with occultism until they either got run out of town on a rail or ran out of paying patients. They roamed from village to village, selling their bogus cures to people who were desperate enough to ignore their instincts and do anything for a tuberculosis cure. Many of these traveling hucksters were from Germany or Eastern Europe. Many of them came from vampire country. But New England was the new vampire country, the 19th century's final victim. America's westward expansion had sucked the best and the brightest young people out of the northeastern backwoods, leaving the oldest and least fit behind. Even the Chamber of Commerce couldn't put a happy face on what had happened. In 1911, Boston's Chamber of Commerce published a boosterish book called New England, but the picture it painted of rural New England was bleak, bleak, bleak. There came over New England an era of halting effort due to the loss of primal vigor to the West and the newer sections of the country, a drain of New England's energy and initiative. There has been a constant exhaustion of New England's vitality, comparable only to the giving of her own life to her children by a mother. New England suffered, and suffered more acutely and more fundamentally than we will ever estimate the wholesale and continual transfusion of her best blood to the veins of the newer states could only mean the weakening of her own constitution and the limiting of her own development. The vampire of progress sucked New England dry. By 1893, there were only 17 people living per square mile of Rhode Island, and a fifth of the farms were abandoned, and the fields slowly turned back into forest. Ghost town? It was more like a ghost state. And in 1893, in Exeter, Rhode Island, tuberculosis rampaged through the Brown family. First, their mother, Mary Eliza, followed by the oldest girl, Mary Olive, then 20 and a dressmaker. Her brother Edwin got sick and the family managed to scrape together enough money to send him out west, hoping the dry climate would cure their only son's lungs. Then Lena, known as Mercy, contracted tuberculosis. Edwin didn't find a cure out west and came home to die just in time for his little sister Mercy to die first. The neighbors approached George Brown, the family patriarch, and told him he had no choice. He'd had a wife and three children. Now his wife was dead, and if he wanted his one remaining son to live, he needed to let them do what was necessary. He needed to let them kill the vampire, and he agreed. They dug up his family one by one, Mercy last, and they found her corpse, which was most recent, the most intact, barely rotten at all. They ripped out her heart, and they tore out her liver, 
and they found her heart full of clotted blood. They burned it and her liver on a rock and fed the ashes to Edwin. Then they decapitated his sister and dismembered her body and returned it to her coffin and buried it again in its grave. Edwin died of tuberculosis eight weeks later. Try not to deplore these people. They had been left behind by progress, by the economy, by hope, by education, even by God. But they were our forefathers and our mothers. Their backward superstitions live in us still, boiling up out of our blood at times of panic or pandemic. We are all descended from the vampire's victims, and a fear of the vampire is baked into our DNA. Because the vampire drains the blood of the living into the heart of the dead. He drains the blood of the poor into his own wallet. He drains the land of its vitality and our lives of their hope. He leaves us so helpless, so scared, so dumbfounded, that we will dig up our own children from their graves, desecrate their corpses, and eat their remains. All of this in 1893, a mere eight years before the presidency of Teddy Roosevelt and the dawn of the 20th century. All these ideas from the 18th and 19th century swirling around about vampires, their blood drinking, their capitalism, their connection with women and race and blood and disease, the fear they created and the fascination they exerted, all of this was about to come crashing together just four years later in 1897 in a book that would help shape the image of the vampire for the rest of the 20th century. Dracula. Join us next week to discuss language arts. We'll be looking at a book that came out in 1897 and changed a whole lot of things about vampires. It's about a manic pixie dream girl, racism, and it was written by a woman. And, oh yeah, we'll be talking about that other book that came out in 1897, too. This has been another thinly disguised attempt to get you to buy my novel, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Super Scary Haunted Homeschool is written and produced by me, Grady Hendricks. Music thanks to Albanian folk troupe number 447, Mike Guy Music, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, China Broadcast Troupe Symphony Orchestra, and Symphonischki Orchestra. See you next week. <laughs>